need in order to build properly going forward. Have I got a ghost here doing the whole? It is October. Okay. You and I will not be able to live out the very high calling of these next three chapters. I want you to kind of put your seatbelt on over the next many weeks, knowing that these three chapters are going to call us to some very big, difficult, challenging things, especially as we see them in context of all that the Lord's doing in bringing a church together in unity. You and I will not be able to get there without the security of the first three chapters and all of the things that have been afforded to us and allowed to us in Christ. I was able to play um, uh, golf the other day. Well, I should say I walked the course and, and a ball went places, but it wasn't really like playing the game. And we played best ball. And so best ball is that kind of thing where you've got, in, in this case, we had four guys, so we had two teams. And you, you take the best shot out of your team wherever the ball went. And so what there is this kind of funny thing that happens if the first shot is actually a really good one, then the person who comes up next, you try to do better and stuff like that. But there's all this kind of comfort and security of like, we're safe. We can still use that shot. So this time I can rip it. I can just let it go and I can go nuts on it and stuff and see if it turns out better or just have fun with it or something. Why? Because there's safety in the first shot that was made. I have security in that. Ironically, every time we felt like we could do that and just haul off and smack the ball, we always end up catching the ground and it goes bloop, 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 you know, so better to play it safe and play your game and do the right thing. But this is what Paul is spelling out to us. There's security that is there for us. And so as we start moving into the practical aspects of living out our faith and, and building this church based on his blueprints, we're doing something built on a security that is already there for us instead of us having to figure it out, reinvent the wheel and feel all that pressure. It's on us to simply walk into it. And so my outline this morning as we walk through some of these points, as you've seen in your notes, hopefully this morning, and I, I trust that you're reviewing those from time to time. The, the things at the bottom of the page are things that don't often make it into the sermon. They're ideas and practical ways in which we walk out of here on a Sunday and things that can go with you as you study throughout the week and that sort of thing. But you're going to see that the points that are on that page are painfully simple. But they contain principles that will bring the church to ruin if we ignore them. They are simple and straightforward, but I don't think they're points that we often consider. The first being that Christian unity is the result or the byproduct or the outcome of Christian character. So let's go back to our text in Ephesians 4 and let's just read the first couple verses. Paul says, therefore, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You remember from previous messages that Paul is identifying himself as the Lord's prisoner, as we've already said this morning. And so that mindset is nobody can do anything to me that God hasn't already planned out. And it's easier and better for me. It's more secure and satisfying for me just to surrender to being his prisoner and not make it about if these stupid guards didn't do this. And if that law wasn't this way and if they didn't, he said, this is the Lord's plan. It's playing out exactly how he wanted it to. It's my job to surrender to it, even in these chains. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. 
remember as we closed out our time last week, that it was urgency that brought Paul to his knees. It was desperation. And so he's calling us to things. He's saying, look, this isn't going to come naturally. This isn't going to be easy. I am urging you. He's not just making a sales pitch. He's pleading with us to walk in this manner, to walk in a worthy manner. Simply put, I'm urging you people, church of the last many generations for the last 2,000 years, make your lifestyle match the high calling that you've received in Christ Jesus. He's, he's indicating to us that there's a very high standard that comes in walking in holiness. And he's saying it's okay for us to hold one another to that standard. Not very popular today. Sounds a little judgy. Sounds like we have expectations on how other people live their lives. And we're not supposed to do that. Even the scripture says, judge not lest you be judged. Everything's fine. You do you, I do me. It's all we need to do. No, Paul is saying the reality is, is we all have a standard. One that has been given to us in, in, in our walk, in our conduct with Christ. But the reality is everybody lives by a standard whether they admit it or not. My favorite uh, sports team, the one I follow the most in the world, is the Boston Celtics. And uh, they have um, had a great turnaround partway through last season, and they were a team with a lot of young talent, and they had a brand-new head coach that the team said, we want this guy because we think we could relate to him. But people were like, he's never really head coached before. Is he going to be able to do it? He's going to, you know, part of the job in these, in these environments is to pull egos together. And to manage all of these guys who are making way more money than they know what to do with in the very early 20s and all this kind of stuff. And this coach last year did an amazing job doing that. It was an incredible turnaround. They, they, they far exceeded their expectations. They were playing for a championship. They lost within those last couple of games. But still, the expectations were set high and the character and the conduct of the coach was largely applauded for all of his efforts only to find out in the last couple of weeks he's had an inappropriate relationship and said other things, all this kind of stuff with a female staffer, and it's all blown up. And the team had to face a dilemma. They had to understand we have this incredible opportunity to continue to build on our success, the success, the success that nobody saw coming. So do we do this and chase the dollars and build the fan base and make everybody happy and we'll just sweep this under the rug? Or do we live by a higher standard? Do we live by a code of conduct and say, we just don't allow that kind of thing here? Fortunately, and I think sometimes rarely, we saw a team like that make the right call. And they've moved on from that coach and they've said, we're suspending him for a year. What he does after that is up to him, but we're moving on. We've got to change the game plan. We don't care how much success we've had. We've got to find another way to get there. So you can pray for the Celtics that they find their way back to the championship. <laughs> the holiness or the uniqueness of the church is preserved when her people are who they say they are. All of us. So what does that look like? Paul has some ideas for us. He says, first off, that it needs to be seen in humility and gentleness. This wasn't a very tasteful message back in the day. Even those that were a part of the church were saturated in a culture where humility was seen as something that's only reserved for the slaves. It's only reserved for those who better know their place and don't expect anything better than that. Being humble, as we see it now as a positive trait or characteristic, wasn't really introduced until Jesus started demonstrating it and actually touting it. 
In Matthew 20, that's one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible because in particular the way that Matthew lays it out because you see the squabbles and the humanness of people all while Jesus is trying to communicate, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to lay it all down. I'm going to give up everything for you. And after he does that and the, the apostles are like, oh, interesting, interesting. Then one of their moms comes up and says, hey, Jesus, I have a question. Would you please let my boys sit on your right hand and your left when you get to heaven? I want them to have the most prominent seats next to their savior. I want them to be elevated so all can see these were the faithful guys. They were by his side. Jesus says, that's not my place to give. He says, instead, no, I would see to it that, that, uh, as he called them together in verse 25 of Matthew 20, he says, he says to him, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over their people. They walk around like they're hot stuff. They look for the best seats. Their great ones exercise authority over them. He says, guys, we're doing something different here. It isn't supposed to be that way among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Imagine how radical and profound that would have been again in their culture. That was for the loser. That was for the one who cannot expect to get ahead. Has no business to even entertain the notion. Jesus is saying that's the only way we win this war. But whoever be great among you must be your servant. Doesn't that sound a little bit like today? When we go back and visit that kind of cultural expectation that, that humility is for the weak. Pride is our most celebrated and longed for characteristic today. When somebody finally comes into peace with who they are and walks in that confidence, we go, that person has arrived. They're fully confident in themselves. They're comfortable with themselves. It's all about they've accepted themselves and now they're moving in that. Yet, pride, scripturally speaking, is constantly pitted against godliness. In James 4, 6, it says, Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Isn't it interesting that our culture is touting the very thing that God goes on record to say, I oppose that. I will come and smash it. I will not share the stage with your pride, with your ego. And unless we just think this is a problem for those out there, there are subtle forms of pride that still run rampant in the church and they erode the stability of the structure of our unity. It's like discovering a, a, a hive of termites in the wood and all of a sudden we're thinking, this whole thing could collapse at any second. C.S. Lewis says, forcing yourself to stop self-admiration is like fighting the hydra. There seems to be no end to it. Depth under depths of self-love and self-admiration. We could easily retort, but I thought we had a self-esteem problem today. I thought everyone was saying that's our big societal problem is that we don't love ourselves enough. These subtle or not so subtle forms of pride show up in all the things that we say or do. And I've just listed, I'm going to list here just a few by example. In lying to cover our tracks, we often are admitting without saying it out loud that my reputation matters more than the truth. When we indulge in greed, what we're saying is, I deserve this and I've done the evaluation and I think I'm worth it. Or when we gossip, we say, I'm important because I know something you don't know. 
When we're angry, we're saying to somebody subtly, maybe not out loud, we wouldn't dare couch it in these terms, but we're saying, how dare you do this to me? I don't deserve this from you. Or when we run into judgmentalism, what that's saying is, I'm morally superior, I'm always right, and by default, that means you are not. Or we get boastful and we start to confess subtly that I'm so important that I need to be recognized and esteemed. All of these things, these are, these are what the, the outcomings are things that we excuse or we say that's just a personality characteristic or something along those lines. But what they are is they are subtle forms and subtle admissions that pride still lives deep within me. MacArthur says, as long as self is at the center, as long as our feelings, our prestige and rights are our chief concern, there will never be unity. Isaiah 48, 12, as God is speaking to his people, he says, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. Our pride is saying, I'm not sure I agree with that. I also want to be included in the list. And we wake up thinking about us first and we go to bed thinking about us last. God is saying, that is my position. Humility, Paul is saying, is a key towards us moving into harmony and unity together. And he also said that it would be expressed through gentleness I like how humility is the first thing he mentions because I've been on this kind of kick lately about saying, boy, if we just got this humility thing down, yes, myself included, I can't say that I've got a book for sale, humility and how I achieved it. Maybe it's because I'm looking at it in the mirror and just being like, all right, get over yourself and all this kind of stuff. But I think that humility is the starting place for all of these things so that gentleness and patience and love that will come later in the text are all things that have been launched from a spirit and a heart of humility expressed in gentleness. And I think this is woefully absent from many Christians' lives today. We've been emboldened to be harsh. We've been emboldened to be direct. We need to tell people what our position is. We need to tell them where they're wrong. We need to defy all of their movement against us. And we need to do it showing our teeth and raising our claws. I think that gentleness has kind of been replaced in the church by this thing that we call conviction, which ends up kind of being portrayed as nastiness and harshness. Gentleness is not something that shows weakness or is just a pushover or the constant, as we often say, the doormat. It's a meekness, and perhaps you've heard this before, but meekness is different than weakness. It is controlled strength. It's like taking that lion and that trainer saying, oh no, they've been, they, this lion's been tamed. You can go up and pet it and everything. You should kind of approach that with some respect and say, but at any moment that thing could bite my head off, right? Yes, it still has its teeth and claws. You might want to be cautious. But best we can tell, he's had a meal today. I've spent a lot of hours with him. You should be safe. There's an aspect of when we see power that's been tamed, It could do the thing that it has every right to do, but it has been led in a different direction. This is what Paul is trying to get across. You have the ability, you have the knowledge, you have the wherewithal to put everyone in their place. And a lot of times we use the scriptures to do it because we know them so well. But instead, just letting that be tamed and be led by the master. 
Another way of looking at this is it's the absence of pursuing personal rights. We're Americans, though. We got our personal rights down, don't we? And, and, and Paul is saying that if you want unity of the church, you start carrying that spirit into that context saying, well, I know what I deserve. Back in the old days, I don't know if you've seen this, but it used to be fighting over where you sat in the church. And if someone took your spot, then it was just like, hey, that was mine. I've been here forever or something like that. Silliest of things. But it is that mindset that comes in saying, I have personal rights and you can't tell me otherwise. Now, as I said about being a doormat and all these things that we often fear, this is not a license for someone just staying in an abusive situation. I feel like I need to clarify that. That this isn't just because you're pursuing unity that you keep being somebody's punching bag and all these kinds of things. That there's a way for us to stand for truth that is for the best of the other person, not even making it about you. But it has to start somewhere. It has to start with that heart of surrender. Lord, how do I get to that solution? How do I carry that through? Can you see why Paul had to urge us to submit to this? This isn't the natural course that we have. Our fears and our insecurities all get in the way of this. So he says, out of, out of uh, humility and, pa- uh, and gentleness, but now he's saying patience and love, again, building off of one another. He says, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Patience is a forbearance. It's, it's again, very closely related to gentleness. It's a reluctance to avenge wrongs. But they did this to me. They said this to me. They're clearly guilty. I know. But just be reluctant to go pursue your vengeance. Pump the brakes a little bit. Pause for a second. Often in my counsel, I tell people, just withdraw from doing the next thing that comes naturally to you. Because the thing that comes naturally to you is coming out of self-protection. It's coming out of a vengeful. If you just hit the brakes and say, I don't trust my next move, the Lord can do so much with just that offering. A church, the story is told a, a way back when a church had filed a lawsuit against half of its congregation. They were fighting. They were starting to split. They were not seeing eye to eye on anything. And so they actually wrongfully, according to the scripture, took their problem to the, to the courts. And it's like clearly in scripture saying as Christians, we shouldn't be doing that to one another. And so the court ended up kind of kicking it out and saying, this is a problem you guys got to solve yourselves. And so they had within their denominational ranks some kind of church court. And so it shows up there. And they actually ended up awarding the whole property of the church to one half of it and said, okay, we see your case. This half in the split gets the church. The rest of you have to do something else. As they started digging into where did all of this strife come from? How did such a major rift uh, begin to grow in the church? It all came back down to, and it's scary that we just advertised a potluck, but it all came back down to a church dinner. And an elder sitting next to a child was offended that the, el- that the child got a bigger slice of ham than he did. Stupid, Right? And, and in our minds, we're, we're, we're thinking, I would never let get something that, something like that get so out of control. But don't we? If we don't come into this with this mindset of, I, I have come to lose as a prisoner of the Lord. I give all the outcomes out to him. If I don't watch that like a hawk, I could very well be the person who's upset over the slice of ham. Because maybe that's the last straw. 
maybe I've been putting up with this for a long time and then eventually it's just enough is enough. Maybe that kid belongs to my enemy in the church. I've said, you did that on purpose. You served that ham just to spite me. I don't think that elder wanted a bigger piece. It's how it all piles up that we don't show that kind of patience or forbearance or a reluctance to avenge wrongs. The strength of our unity is dependent on our willingness to be wronged. He said patience and love. Remember he said to us last week that we'd be rooted and grounded in love, that we would have our roots go into the soil of love to be nourished by it, but also to have the foundation of love in our life. And we had said that it was very different from the Beatles' take on love, which was very passive. As long as you're having a good time, we'll have a good time. We won't get in each other's way. But instead, love is pursuing what is best for you instead of me. That helps us balance out. When do I pull the plug in an abusive situation? It's not good for you to stay as someone's punching bag. You're basically enabling them to keep expressing anger and, and, and using you and mistreating you and all those kinds of things. So even out of love, you can say enough's enough. I'm walking out of this situation because it's not good for that other person to be in such dangerous and troubling places even before the Lord. You see, love helps us balance out and gives us wisdom to walk through all of these things. It's seeking the best for somebody else. Instead, the world would come in and say, no, you're not going to be able to love somebody else properly until you learn to love yourself. That's the perversion that we've made so popular, and I hear it all through Christianity. And my first reaction to that is, I can't trust me. How do I know when I've been loved enough before I can love you? I'm hungry for that every single day. And I don't ever think you've given me enough. If I'm speaking to you metaphorically, the rest of the world, I wake up thinking I need to be served. This is in my heart of hearts, in my unsaved, you know, portions of my life. I wake up saying the world hasn't given me everything that I deserve. And I'm going to live by a mantra that says I won't be able to love other people until I, my love tank is full enough. Somebody once said to me, I think my love tank is leaky. It never seems to get full. Loving others above yourself is a step of faith that is rewarded with peace and unity, all the things that we are striving for. Let me try to quickly move on here and and wrap this up. The second point, two out of three. Let's try to do this. Christian unity originates from a unified trinity. See, we often don't, put doctrine behind the things that we do. And this will be clarifying for us. Let's go back to verses four through six. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Perfect harmony, the thing that eludes us because we live in a sinful world and because people still do things to us and everything. Perfect harmony, perfect unity, or what we would call perfect fellowship already exists in the triune Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all eternally existent at the same time. And Paul is giving us a window into their unity in this passage. There wasn't anything else they needed. They weren't like those of us, I won't say who, that when a kid moves out, we feel like we have to replace that kid with a puppy. That's us, right? 
I, I think Chris and I would admit that, that we kind of do that. Whenever we lose a kid, we're like, well, we're used to... I'll tell you, I might have told you this once before. I'm sorry, but I'm on a roll picking on her. I remember the day that she said, because well, we were still having our many kids, and I remember her saying, I don't know, just whenever I look in the rearview mirror and I see an empty seat in the van, I feel guilty for not filling that seat. I was like, I'm going to get a right-sized van then. I'm going to go get the, right, the vehicle that has only enough seats for the family that we have unsuccessfully that that wasn't the feeling of the trinity the trinity wasn't going ah something's missing between us we're bored let's create people let's make their lives miserable and all these that's not what they said as an expression of who god is he created as an expression of who god is he loved despite our walking away from his lordship as an expression of who God is, he is calling us to draw together, to live in harmony, in unity with one another. And so Paul uh, reintroduces us to the Holy Spirit. He says that the Holy Spirit is the one who creates the church. He fills the church. He coordinates all of the, the moving pieces of the church that we are to be um, fulfilled in and that we are to be surrendered to. He orchestrates the, the moving of the church and the leading of the church and he empowers it beyond what our human capabilities are. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says that for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. He tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is, is the object and the focus of the church. This is why when we were choosing to, to go through the Apostles' Creed or to share a common confession, it would be one that was built on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. This is our one faith, is that we see him the same way. We may not all understand at the same degree, but we see Jesus for who he is. What you and I believe about Jesus is what unites us to Christians all over the world, from generations past to even this current one. That's why whenever you see other upstart denominations or ones that have lost their strength or ones that we wouldn't consider Christian uh, are the ones that have gotten the person of Jesus Christ wrong. They didn't believe in him as the scriptures have revealed him. And this is the one baptism that we've been unified into the family of believers through. Now, we do a physical baptism here as commanded to us by the scriptures. We, in our church, we put a tank in the front and we kind of go through the process of interviewing and finding out where people are at with their walk with Christ and everything. And then we physically dip them in water to signify that your old life has died in the grave, but in Christ, your new life has been resurrected. But this baptism that, that Paul is writing about here isn't, isn't just the physical picture of it. It's the one that you and I have been welcomed, ushered into the family together. It's a representation of the fact that we've come from death to life. We've been, we've, we were slaves and now we're free. We were once orphans and now we're family. And he says all of this under the, the paternity, the shared paternity of God the Father. You see how Paul keeps wanting both Jew and Greek and us to keep coming to the fact that we have the same head, we have the same dad that we love, that we answer to. The Godhead is the originator of our unity. 
And Paul uses the word one, in quotes here, one, seven different times. And if you know anything about your Bible study and stuff, you'll see that seven is a, is a representation of completion in the scriptures. And I don't think it's by accident. I don't have anything that tells me for sure. I don't think it's by accident that Paul uses this word seven times to, to talk about the completion and the oneness that is found in God that he's now calling us to walk in. He's urging us to walk in. But we skipped over a verse. If you look back at verse 3, he's urging us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We go back to this theme of urgency. To understand that Christian unity is maintained by us. That this is the burden that's been placed on our shoulders. The reason why I said that these, these points are painfully simple, but they're often ignored, is because we go through autopilot seasons where we say, somebody else will make sure the church gets along. Somebody else will make sure that everyone's okay. Or, but the responsibility is placed on us to maintain unity. Not to create it, not to originate it. That's already been given to us. But to maintain it. And often we wait for feelings of unification in order to engage in it. That person was so welcoming. That person was so inviting. Or we had things in common I didn't know. And once we started talking, we just really clicked. That's the way we typically operate. And then it looks like unity because we're getting along. But that wouldn't have to be urged, would it? That's pretty natural. It's pretty easy. Instead, Paul says, no, I'm urging you to do the thing that's even uncomfortable, to create that unity, to go after that unity, even when it seems like we don't agree, we don't have things in common, we're not getting along at the moment. Good feelings are the byproduct of good living, not the other way around. So Paul is calling us to be makers of peace, maintaining the unity based on these principles that we've seen. We're being guided by scripture and we're giving those things over to the Lord, including the results. But for you and me and our spirit and our heart, we need to surrender to the task of giving, not simply just looking for the receiving. This is what James three says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That would make an excellent memory verse for those of you so inclined. Can you imagine what kind of culture we would have if everyone was willing to be wronged for the sake of unity? Let's practice this as we're driving home today. It's a good place for that to where the rubber meets the road. <laughs> but um, I promise that's not in my notes. I didn't plan that. Sorry. Not ignoring truth, but ignoring my personal rights. I'm not saying that it's okay for error to continue. But my ability to be seen or my desire to be seen as right or always needing to have a leg up or anything like that. Could I let go of that? Can you imagine what kind of family you'd have if everyone woke up in the morning trying to figure out how to best serve the other person? Imagine if that's where your kid's starting position is you're trying to get them ready for school and all that sort of stuff. Hey, how can I help today, mom? Yeah, right. The Lord will have shown up for sure, right? Can you imagine how safe and secure our building, which is uh, the, by the, pl- the blueprints, either our church or our family or the society that, that God is building? Could you imagine how safe and secure our building could be if we just trusted the blueprints of God's design? 
And if these things sound like impossibilities, you're in good company. The cynic in me says there's no way that will ever happen this side of heaven. And yes, theologically, we know that it's not ever going to be heaven on earth, that heaven comes later. But that's why we need to pray for Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Ask God to do more in your church. Ask God to do more in your family. Ask him to do more in the world in which you live than you could even imagine is possible. Let's stand and pray together. Lord God, we thank you, Father. For keeping us together despite all of our attempts to break ourselves apart. Lord, the unity of your church over the last two millennia is just nothing short of a miracle. And while we often focus on its dysfunction, while we often see its disunity, Lord, there is so much of it has been held intact that your truth is still going forward. So we celebrate that and we rejoice in that. But Lord, from that, we also take our marching orders. We don't want to be guilty in this generation of dropping the ball. So I pray, Lord, you'd help us to advance your cause. As long as you tarry, you may have a lot longer for people to dwell on this earth before you return. So help us, Lord, not to be faithless. Help us not to be petty. Help us not to be fighting for our own rights and desires. But instead, Lord, to pursue giving and losing for the sake of someone else and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.